Good evening and uh, welcome to uh, Night Templar, episode uh, 43, and we're doing part four of seven on the relevance of the Bible. For those of you um, who haven't heard the first three, you can uh, look those up on our on the Podbeam app. We're on Spotify, a podcast under Amazon Music on the Audible. Tune in to Plus Alexa iHeartRadio, Player FM, um, under Samsung, under the devices, uh, Sam, Samsung Podcasts, um, Podchaser. And we'll be on a few more um, coming up here shortly. Most likely it'll be on Google Podcasts and uh, Boomplay. Those should be popping up. You can also uh, get access uh, through Twitter. Um, or our Facebook account as well. Uh, you can follow me on that. Follow us on that. Um, for those of you that have any prayer requests, um, you can email those to me at davidr258 at comcast.net. Or you can go to our website at www.americanightstemplars.com. Uh, we're going to get started here. This is going to be uh, part four of seven. So let's uh, start. Um, again, I'm using uh, a book, uh, The Revelance of the Bible by H.H. H. Raleigh. Very good. Lots of good points in this book, in his book. Um, we'll start now. The Use of the Bible is this uh, subtitle. The Bible is, uh, before all things, a religious book. Uh, this, uh, this we have said repeatedly and emphasized, but uh, to it we must return to see how the fact, how this fact should determine our use of the Bible. If we would truly understand it, it is, well, to give it scientific study. Yet if we give it only scientific study, we shall miss its richest meaning. The patient study of the day and origin of its books, of the sources employed in their compilation, and the method of their compilation, uh, the study of all vast and wealth of material now available to us, disclosing the background of the world history in which the Israelite history must be set, and the culture and religious outlooks of the Israel's of Israel's neighbors and masters, the study of our own religious growth, and the examination of the religious ideas found in the Old Testament and their relations with those of the New. All of these things are abundantly worthwhile because they enable us to read it with understanding and to see it with true perspective. But if we were, but if we have only this kind of understanding, even though our knowledge is encyclopedic, um, and have no appreciation of the sublimity of its message, we have uh, not learned to read it. On the other hand, if we read the Bible as a scientifically reliable authority on the creation of the world and the structure of the universe, if we treat its narratives as exact records of fact to be, a, to be accepted implicitly and uh, uncritically, if we treat its 
prophetic passages, whether in the Old Testament or the New, as knotty puzzles to which, if we were clever, we could find the key and so peer into the future. If we do any of these things, we use the Bible for a purpose for which it was never intended. It was not written to be a scientific historical textbook, but a book of religion. Yeah, it's true that the Bible contains some excellent historical writing, and that, in particular, the books of Samuel and Kings rank high amongst the ancient writings of for historical fidelity. But even they were not written primarily to give exact knowledge of the past, but to inculcate religious teaching. Hence the reign of Omri, though it must have been a considerable importance, is passed over in a few verses. And though Ahab had more extensive treatment on account of the religious conflict of his reign, not a word is said of his share in the coalition of a dozen western states that oppose Shalspinsir's the third at the Battle of Karkar. Even where we have accurate history, it is only history written from a religious point of view and therefore selective. Uh, moreover, much of the narrative writing of the Bible is clearly idolized and exaggerated. Even so stout, a defender of the accuracy of the Bible, as Sir Charles Marston finds it impossible to accept the flood story as it stands, believing firmly that it rests on an actual flood that occurred in the South Babylonian plains, he finds it hard to believe that it was a universal character of that ark once contained all that was left of humanity and of the lower creatures, and observes that it has been calculated that to do this, the ark must have been uh, about the size of the Isle of White, or Wright. Uh, it, is, it is true, again, that the Bible contains many predictions, but the prophets predict the future only as arising out of the present and not of a distant future that was uh, unrelated to their own time. There was indeed the Masonic, uh, Mesosanic uh, hope for uh, more distant days, but that was expressed to more general terms without any indication as to what that Masonic age would dawn. In the later period, when prophecy was replaced by apocalyptic, or apocalyptic period, uh, when the prophecy was replaced by apocalyptic, which was not concerned with a future that should arise out of the present, but with a future that should consist in a divine breaking into the present and catastrophic ending of the present world order, the consummation of the age was looked for an immediate future, but beyond all prediction whether that of prophetic or uh, prophetic or beyond all predictions, whether a prophetic or apocalyptic order, stumbling over my words, prophets in apocalypse were charged with a living religious message to men. And if we but study their predictions and consider the time and manner of their fulfillment, whether we understand or misunderstand those predictions, we shall miss their true value. It is impossible to insist too strongly on this. The books of the Bible were written were written for a religious purpose. Um, they were collected together and treasured by people who found religious strength in their use. 
They have been publicly read in synagogues and church, not in order that the faithful might have an accurate knowledge about the past or the future, but they might be brought closer to God and receive his word into their hearts. And unless we find in them spiritual nurture for ourselves and make them the vehicle of a spiritual enrichment to others, we are failing miserably to find their true use. It is sometimes feared that the modern study of the Bible has been uh, impo- has, has been made impossible, uh, this sort of use. In truth, it has made possible the richer religious uses. It has delivered us from the notion that the cruder ideas found in the Old Testament are or ever have been true ideas of God, and it has taught us to consider them in relation to the age and outlook from which they sprang. It has warned us that we cannot regard every teaching of the Old Testament or the New as a direct and authoritative message of God. Yet it has taught us to find even very crudities of the cruder passages, the Word of God, who has who was striving to make himself known to men. It has given us a historical understanding of the Bible to be the basis of a for the spiritual understanding and not a substitute for it. Let us take the illustration of a story of Abraham's uh, narrowly averted sacrifice of Isaac. We can read it as an item in the biography of Abraham and accept it as no more than a fresh fact in the patriarch's life. There is no religious value in that. For it is not the truth or falsity of the story that religious value lies, but in the spiritual message it enshrines, and it depends on whether we receive that spiritual message or not, as to whether the story has religious value for us. Jesus found his highest lessons again and again in common experiences that other people passed unnoticed. A sour sowing seed, a woman losing a coin, a keen merchant seizing a bargain. These were all matters of common experience with no intrinsic religious quality yet jesus found them found in them a religious message because of the way he looked at them others saw these things as most of us still do a dull quote facts unquote in the same way we can regard the story of abraham and isaac as mere quote fact unquote spiritually neutral and uh, and be nothing profited or again We can read the story in the light of the critical study of the Old Testament and merely perceive its significance in the history of religion. Israel lived in a world where human sacrifice was by no means unknown. There are archaeological evidences of human sacrifices in canon, particularly associated with the foundation of buildings. Probably in prehistoric times, Israel's ancestors used to sacrifice used to sacrifice their firstborn children in infancy in the in the Pentateuch Pentateuch uh, law it is laid down that all firstborn were were uh, sacred to the deity, but whereas the firstborn of the herds and flocks had to be sacrificed, the firstborn of human parents were to be redeemed by a substitute. Since these provisions stands in the oldest of the Pentateuch, 
uh, sources, it uh, was certainly in a very early times that the Israelites' firstborn ceased to be sacrificed. But the voluntary sacrifice of children is found in historical times, both in Israel and amongst her neighbors. We learn from Second Kings uh, that when Misha, the king of Moab, was in dire straits, besieged in his capital, he sacrificed his eldest son on the wall of the city in the sight of the besiegers and the besieged. This was not a proof of his callous indifference to the life of his son, but the offer to his God of what he valued above all else on earth. Again, we read that uh, Ahaz, in the latter part of the 8th century uh, B.C., caused, quote, caused his son to pass through the fire, unquote, Second Kings. An example, he sacrificed his son. Possibly this was when he was in terror at the invasion of the Confederate armies of Israel and Aram, and was inspired by the same motive as Mesha's sacrifice of his son. In the following century, we find frequent references to the same practices of child sacrifice, and yet it called forth the noble protest of Micah. Yet, even so, the protest was unheeded, and there are ample evidence that uh, in the time of Jeremiah, the same practices went on. But this story of Abraham and Isaac shows us that far back uh, before this, it had been perceived in Israel, and even the vol voluntary sacrifice for human life was not desired by God. For this story stands in the, in the second of the main documents, which formed the source of the Pentateuch, dated commonly in the 8th century B.C., and uh, it represents the recognition that human sacrifice was not desired by God as having come through the concrete experience of one in a yet early age. I do not, I don't find that uh, difficult to believe that the story is substantially true. The audible voice from heaven may belong to the artistry of the story, but though it may equally find a psychological explanation, but it is in no way incredible that uh, one who has who was on the point of sacrificing his son should should have been impressed by a singular appearance at that moment of the ram that was caught in the thicket and uh, so have changed his purpose. And it could uh, be just as truly God working in him and his decision whether, whether or uh, no he heard a voice. Illumination comes not only from the supernatural sounds that strike the ear, but is often from experience, and I can easily believe that when God wanted to teach men that he did not delight in human sacrifice. He did it through a definite experience that came to man, to a man, and perceiving it significant for himself, he revealed it also to others so that it became a part of uh, inheritance of Israel for all who would receive it, that God did not desire human sacrifices. All this, however, may be spiritually neutral. And uh, I may, I'm going to read a story that but is the moment in a religious progress of mankind without thereby being spiritually enriched. The human sacrifice is not desired by God. Um, 
has become so completely accepted by us that it is no longer a religious message. But the story is not merely of a man who perceived that God did not want him to sacrifice his son. It is a story of a man who loved God enough to sacrifice his son. Abraham loved his God as well as they who sacrificed their children. And what kept him from offering Isaac? was not the coldness of his love, but the realization that it was not God's will. Though he came to realize that there are sacrifices that God does not ask, he first realized that there are none a man should be unwilling to make. That is a rich principle, which still comes with its spiritual challenge to us to be worked out in the terms of our lives. And a deeper even than that, because of a wider application and the perception that's common experience may be the vehicle of a divine message. Read the story merely in a dull, matter-of-fact way and concentrate attention on the audible voice from heaven, and this may be missed. God does not speak to us in a voice from heaven, but read It is, I have suggested, not as something wholly supernatural and unrelated to our experience, but as the story of man who perceived the finger of God in the experiences of his life, whose spirit was teachable, and who, because of his response to what God was saying to him through his experience, was led into a larger truth himself and led others also into it. And it becomes a revelation of the significance of experience. That is a message which runs all through the Bible. Moses, brooding on the wrongs of his people, came to feel a divine urge to go to their aid. God visited him through the sympathy of his heart, and he recognized God and went in his name. And so, When he led the people out of Egypt, it was not to take to himself the credit for the sympathy and service, but to lead them to consecrate themselves in gratitude to to the God who had used him. Many in the history have had sympathy for the downtrodden and have worked to liberate them from oppression, but not all have found God through their sympathy or have made their liberating ministry a spiritual experience. Similarly, again, Hosea found a new understanding of God through the very faithfulness, faithlessness of his wife and the agony it caused him. His experience of, of a faithless partner was not unique, but his findings of God in that experience and its conversion into a spiritual enri- enrichment made it unique. Or again, Jeremiah in a loneliness that was unrelieved, hated, and persecuted found a new understanding of the meaning of prayer and a new perception that the essence of religion is in her. He realized that the deepest ritual of religion is not that of the temple, but the soul's traffic with God. Each of these cases each of these cases proclaims that the vital thing is not the experience itself, but the response to the experience and all of these who responded aright through their response brought enrichment to themselves and a larger inheritance for others. And uh, herein is a living religious message to us. 
we are apt to judge our life by the experiences we meet instead of recognizing that all important thing is our response to experience life for us as for abraham and moses and hosea and jeremiah and many another whose story lies in the old testament may be a glow with god but what of a miracle in the old testament in treating the experience of these old testament characters as something holier than our experience but uh, as something comparable with our experiences differing indeed in its contents but alike in its essence and i'm not quietly evading the question of the old testament miracles can we believe the old testament miracles if we can do they not mark these ancient experiences in so many cases as holy other than our experience for we do not experience such miracles or if we cannot accept these miracles it is merely a rationalism ultimately would shut uh, shut god out of his word that uh, prevents us by earlier generations of the christians miracles we are accepted as a divine authentication of revelation in our generation however miracle is great difficulty and so far from the miracles of the bible authenticating it they form a stumbling block to its acceptance and we are not seldom told that a scientific age has left no room for miracles i think we need to to first uh, define what we mean by a miracle let's take for our, our purpose a simple and broad definition a divine intervention in this course of events for myself i say at once uh, and emphatically that i believe firmly in the credibility of a miracle in that sense nothing else seems to me to be possible on this theistic view of the world if God was merely created, has merely created the world and handed it over to natural law in such a way that he no longer, he is no longer free to initiate events or interfere in the chain of causation, then we revert to an aridism that uh, regulates him to the confines of his universe and assigns him a lesser place in the world of a lesser place in the world of reality than we occupy ourselves we can initiate events it is responsible to suppose that god alone is shut out of the world is it responsible you think if there's a god at all surely we must believe that he has not less power to initiate events than we have, but far more. But when God intervenes, is it not the suspended is it not to suspend the laws of the universe, but to use them to achieve his will? He controls men, and he controls the forces of nature, and makes them makes the one serve his makes the one serve his purpose as well as the other. But as his control of men is not inconsistent with human freedom, so his control of nature is not inconsistent with natural law. It will be seen, then, that while I hold the possibility of a miracle, I have not committed myself to the acceptance as ever recorded marvel in the Old Testament. Indeed, the very terms in which I have expressed my faith in 
and miracle will shut out many of them. For the marvels recorded in the Old Testament are of many kinds. We have to examine the record in each case and scrutinize its evidence. For an easy and undiscriminating credulity is as unwise as the blind in the prior priory skepticism. In the Old Testament, we find a recorded number of occasions when God used natural forces to serve his purpose and help his people. Let's start with a simple instance, uh, the victory by the Israelites under the leadership of Deborah. In her time, the veil of uh, Esdraelon was still in Canaanite hands, and the highlands to the north and south were in Israelite hands. But the Israelite tribes were not united, and the Canaanites, by dealing with them piecemeal, were increasingly dominating them. And Deborah saw that it was essential for the Israelites to the north and to the south of the valley to act together to throw off the yoke. Uh, she collected the tribes in the south and urged Barak to uh, collect those in the, to the north. And the two groups met on the slopes of Mount Tabor. The Canaanites, under their leader, Sisera, equipped with chariots, gathered to crush them. But chariots were of little use on the mountain slopes, and the Israelites dreaded to meet them in the plains. So since the chariots could not mount the slopes, it was for the Israelites to choose the moment of attack. And in a moment of their need, there came a downpour of rain. And in a few moments, the soft, earth, the soft earth was a morass, and the chariots were useless. The Israelites, light and mobile, rushed down the slopes, and the Canaanites, with their now immobile chariot and plunging horses, were at their mercy. And a great victory was wrought for Israel, and a victory while Deborah celebrated and a and a victory while Deborah celebrated it in a fine and spirited song. Quote, the stars in their courses fought against Sisera. She's saying, that's in Judges 5, verse 20. And well, she might. That, of course, is not uh, to be taken literally. It is a poetic expression of the historic fact that the victory was achieved not so much in the heroism of the Israelite warriors as by uh, timely help of natural forces. Was it an accident? A mere coincidence? Israel was in no doubt that it was God's intervention to help her, and therefore a miracle within the terms of our definitions. Take another simple case. In First Samuel, we have the story of the whole Philistine army being put to flight by Jonathan and his armor-bearer. At the beginning of the story, Jonathan expresses the faith of God that can save by few just as well as by many, and then it goes on to tell how great the victory was achieved by these two men only, the rest of the Israelite band of Saul only joining in the pursuit when the Philistine army was completely demoralized. That may seem to an incredible story until it is examined. Take a look at it. The Philistine camp was on a high ground with an outpost on a spur looking down on a valley in which was uh, made of wood. Jonathan and his companion came out from the cover of the wood 
and the Philistine outpost hurled down his taunts to them, uh, challenging them to come up. Jonathan, uh, whose whole life had been spent there, knew the ground and knew where he could climb the hill without being seen by the Philistines. In a short time, his head rose close to the nearest Philistine, who had a little dreamed, who had little dreamed that the challenge would be accepted, and who was wholly unnerved because taken off his guard. Without waiting to see how many were following Jonathan, he cried out that the Israelites had come and communicated his terror to his companions, who all set off to run to the camp. But again, Jonathan knew every inch of the ground, whereas in the, to the Philistines, it was unfamiliar. Hence, he could tra traverse through the rough ridge quicker than they, and overtaking them one by one, he dealt them swift blows from behind that felled them one after the other, each filling his fellows with deeper terror by the cry of with which he fell. And uh, when, breathless and demoralized, the remnant broke into the camp with that cry that the Israelites were upon them, panic broke out in the camp, each man dashing to get his weapons and confused reigning everywhere. Confusion was everywhere. <laughs> Some Hebrews who had uh, been impressed for the menial work in the camp improved the opportunity and seizing what weapons they could joined in the melee. Uh, here the victory was wrought by the aid of the psychological factors. The unexpected emergence of two men's heads threw a few into panic, and their panic was soon communicated to a larger body. Uh, there is nothing uh, at all incredible to this. But was it an accident, or was it God? Again, Israel was in no doubt. But sometimes the problem is much more complex than this. What of uh, Joshua and the sun standing still? What of the crossing of the Red Sea with the water standing in the walls on each side? What of the walls of Jericho falling down flat and the sound of trumpets? Here we have sheer marvels. The, the suspension of the laws of nature. Shall we reject these? And if so, is it merely on the priory grounds? Just uh, examine them. In the case of Joshua and the sun, we have a prose account with a fragment of poetry embedded in it. The poetry is undoubtedly the older and thoroughly credible. The prose account heightens the marvel by saying the sun did, go, did not go down for a whole day and completely changes the whole character of the incident. Consider the circumstances. The Gibbonites were threatened with destruction because of the treaty they had made with Joshua and sent an appeal to him for help. Joshua was at uh, Gilgal when the message reached him, and immediately he made a forced march by night to fall upon the enemy. As he drew near it, was towards the hour of morning, and he cried to the sun and the moon to stand still. Clearly, what he wants is the darkness uncovered, under cover, of which he can fall upon the unsuspecting foe, and that is what he asked for. Sun, be silent upon Gibeon, 
and Dal Moon in the valley of Ijalan. And the sun was silent, and the moon stood until the nation had avenged themselves of their enemies. And Joshua 10. Uh, sun be silent. Unquote. Surely that does not mean sun blaze forth from the heaven, unquote. but, quote, sun do not shine, unquote. It was the darkness, not the light that Joshua wanted. And since Ajalon is in the west of Gibeon, the standpoint of the speaker is apparently between them with the moon to the west and the sun to the east. Whence again, it is clear that it is morning and is not the prolonging of the day, but the night uh, that is desired, and the need was was answered. A storm was brewing, and the the, uh, context shows that morning was unusually dark, giving to Joshua uh, the help he needed. This is the holy credible. This is holy credible. And once more, we have a timely help of nature forces in which Israel could find the hand of God. The prose account is in complete disagreement with this. It heightens the miracle by making it something quite alien to nature and supposes the day was unnaturally prolonged to double the ordinary length. In such case, it would be gratuitous to prefer the later prose account and its rejection uh, does not depend on an unwillingness to uh, believe in a miracle. Or uh, turn the story of the crossing of the Red Sea again. There are two accounts lying side by side, the one from the earliest of the Pentateuch sources and the other from the latest of the sources. The earlier narrative again involves no unnatural event through an unusual and timely one, while the later uh, presupposes a complete suspension of the laws of nature and the utter madness of the Egyptians. According to the earlier account, the Israelites were on the shore of the sea when they saw that uh, the pursuing Egyptians Their deliverance came through a strong east wind, which caused the waters to go back all night. That uh, east wind would not blow a path through the water, but it might contribute to the causing of the particularly low tide. And this appears to be what had happened. There was a particularly low tide, and the Israelites took advantage of it to cross an arm of the sea that could only be rounded by a long journey. The Egyptians attempted to follow them, but by now the tide was coming in, and as the wind had veered round, it came in rapidly. So that soon the chariots of the Egyptians were held in the wet sand, unable to go forward or to return. This is an entirely credible account, and it finds one more in the natural events that are delivering from the hand of God. The other account is very different. It pictures a an avenue of dry ground between walls of water that would be a suspension of the laws of nature, nor would nor it be caused by a strong east wind, nor is it credible that the Egyptians, with such clear evidence of the supernatural powers that were helping the Israelites, would have dreamt of entering between those walls, a supernatural avenue of safety appearing for their foes would scarcely have invited their entry. 
Hence, once more, our rejection of the heightened marvel is not just unreasoned skepticism. Uh, In the case of the walls of Jericho, we have not the same material to examine the question. Uh, Modern defenders of the accuracy of the Old Testament records, such as Sir Charles Marston, uh, suppose that an earthquake happened just at the time and affected the overthrow of the walls. That is to say, they suppose that it uh, was once more by means of natural events that God came to, to the help of this people. If an earthquake did happen, however, it is strange that there is no direct mention of it in the Bible since the Hebrews so frequently saw the hand of God in storms and uh, earthquakes. But we have seen in two preceding cases that an event could be transformed in the course of tradition, and we cannot be certain, therefore, that the same thing has not happened here. Even though we have only the developed from a tradition that Israel did effect a speedy and complete conquest of Jericho is certain. Archaeologically, uh, has now established that a part of the wall was overthrown and the city burned, but how the wall was overthrown, we have no means of knowing. Uh, we can scarcely connect the blowing of the trumpets casually with the collapse of the wall, and there is nothing in the scripture narrative to suggest that we should. These incidents uh, raise the question of how far we are justified in finding the hand of God in history. Um, I've made it quite plain that uh I do not find the hand of God there. The Old Testament regards God as a God of history, controlling the destinies of the nations and setting bounds uh, to the arrogance of men. He delivers his own people from Egypt, and he punishes them when they forsake him. He rises up other nations to be an instrument in his hand for their punishment, um, nations which are invincible so long as they are the agents of his will but which are powerless when they go beyond his purpose. Uh, He raises up Cyrus to overthrow the Babylonian Empire and to open the way to the return from exile. All of this is a reading of history merely from the point of view of Israel, and it is not, therefore, not the whole of the truth. Nevertheless, there is a substantial truth in it, And it seems to me that unless we accept it, we shall merely banish God from his world and fall into the barren skepticism that can find no meaning in the Bible, and ultimately little in any religious experience. I don't mean, of course, that the simple and sole explanation of the rise of Assyria or of Persia was that God wanted them for his purpose uh, relative to Israel. But I do mean that the guiding hand of God was over all history and that all unconsciously they were fulfilling his purpose. But uh, but does that does not this mean that we are making nations into puppets of the Almighty and saddling God with the real responsibility for all that happens? Not at all. 
It is a fundamental biblical doctrine that God is able to bring good out of evil, that he's able to bend evil to conform to his purpose, and that he is able to make the very wrath of men to praise him. Evil is evil, and of itself can produce nothing but evil. Yet God is able to overrule it and make it serve his purpose. Of itself, it is the antitheus of his purpose, yet he can in, integrate its uh, issue in his purpose. Let me take a New Testament illustration. Judas betrayed our Lord, who was then tried and crucified. It is a fundamental Christian doctrine that the cross of Christ is the spring of enduring hope for the world and the source of divine power for recreation of human lives. But Judas has not been canonized, and we do not bless the memory of those who crucified the Lord. They follow the evil purpose of their hearts, and for that purpose their memory is dishonored. God did not compel them to cherish it, and he was not responsible for it. But in his greatness, he was able, from that evil purpose and from that dire sin of the crucifixion, to bring living hope to men. In the same way, the nations are each responsible for the policies they pursue, and we have not to suppose that God ordains or approves all they do. Far otherwise, indeed, much that we, much that they do is atheist of his will. Yet somehow he uses it to further his will. It is surely a much more wonderful view of the power of God, which finds him steadily fulfilling his purpose by the very means of the free activities of men than it would be to suppose that all men were mere uh, atomatic under his control. Uh, and similarly, it is far more wonderful view of his power to find his miraculous hand in turning natural events to the service of his will than to suppose that from time to time he has reduced the suspensions of laws of nature in order to fulfill, fulfill his purpose. There is another class of miracle in the Old Testament, however, uh, to which we must turn. This is a mere marvel. And here I uh, let's take some examples from Elijah and Elisha stories where they were particularly plentiful. There are not miracles in the sense in which uh, we have defined miracles, indeed, but many of them are rather examples of magic. They are not divine acts in response to human need, but wonders wrought by their prophet, uh, the aid of uh, a technique. A man is felling a tree, and his axe head flies off into the water. Elisha throws a stick into the water, and the metal axe head imitates the stick and floats to the surface. This is magic. The control of events by a technique, or again, King Yohas comes to visit Elisha on his deathbed, and the prophet bids him shoot an arrow, the prophet's hand uh, being on his hands, and he shoots. 
And as the arrow flies from the string, the prophet cries, quote, an arrow of victory over Syria, unquote, Second Kings. Uh, then he bids the king strike the floor with his arrows. The king, who evidently has little heart for this business, uh, lightly taps the ground uh, three times, and angrily the prophet rebukes him. Now he shall have but three victories, whereas had he smitten the ground hard and often, he should have had many. Elijah smites the water with his mantle, and uh, the waters divide. Later, Elisha um, is able to do the same thing with the water, with the same magic mantle. Um, all of these and the others in Elijah and Elisha stories are in very different uh, category from the miracles we have examined before. These are not God's acts in response to man's need, but examples of sheer magic. For the essence of magic, it is belief in man's power to initiate the marvel. It may explain the marvel was as wrought by divine agency, but it believes that by the employment of the right technique that divine agency may be set in the motion and that the magician's will and act can control God. Now we need have no hesitation regarding these legendary stories that sprang up speedily around the great names of Elijah and Elijah. Uh, and when we recognize that the accounts of these prophets have been embellished with these marvels, we can have no certainty in the case of other marvels recorded in their sagas. Just because the source through which they come to us is of doubtful value and the respect, respect uh, doubt attaches to the miraculous element in all cases. Uh, what then of the miracle of on Mount Carmel? This is of a different character from others. Uh, for here it was not a miracle to display the prophet's skill, but a divine act of response to his appeal and his sublime uh, venture of faith. There is no reason to doubt that Elijah did figure in a great religious crisis or that he checked the Sennacheristy movement. Uh, Kennett accounted for the story by supposing that what Elijah poured over his altar was not water but naphtha and that it was ignited by the means of a metal mirror that concentrated the sun's rays. Others have suggested that the fire was kindled by lightning, though in that case uh, the altar itself might have been expected to be shattered. I find it uh, kind of difficult to believe that Elijah resorted to a mere trick, and I can uh, only suppose that in some way that we cannot recover by the use of forces that were really natural, though they may not have seemed so to Elijah and the people Elijah was sign signaling vindicated. Um, Yet another class of a miracle is to be found in the Daniel stories. The many historical errors found in the first half of the book of Daniel sufficiently indicated that we are not dealing here with history, but with the legends, with legends used for didactic purposes. Uh, 
Our Lord used parables for didactic purposes, uh, such, for instance, as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We do not ask whether that is an exact record of fact, and as little should we ask whether the stories of Daniel represent historical facts. It will be seen, then, that we can lay down no universal canons. We can neither say that all the Old Testament miracles are to be accepted, nor that all are to be rejected. We can only recognize that miracles reported are of very different kinds, and in its narratives are very, very, very varied historical value. Each must be examined for itself in the light of its own character, in the light of the source in which it stands, in the light of its relation to other accounts which stand beside it, and in the light of the character of God. It is difficult to believe that God's real character was different in ancient days from his character today. And it does not appear to belong to his character to perform wonders merely to impress men and to compel faith. Faith in God must ever be an achievement and a venture. It's in all this, the miracles of the Gospels have been left out of account. How shall we view these? Do they belong to the category of credible, or are they to be viewed as suspicion or skepticism? The question is by no means simple, and I can offer no simple answer to this. Um, that they were, that there was a tendency in early days to ascribe miraculous deeds to Jesus is clear from the. Um, Procophal Gospels. Yet, before we conclude that in our Gospels we see the beginning of that process, we should observe that the Church have distinguished, distinguished clearly between the Apocryphal Gospels and those admitted to the canon and rejected the former from their scriptures. We also observed that it was good, with a good reason, that the distinction was drawn that uh, the restraint of and dignity of the miracle stories of the canonical Gospels were compared with those of the apocryphal Gospels uh, should induce uh, the utmost caution in supposing that the former are mere inventions. In our day, a great many things are done which an earlier generation would have regarded as miraculous. These are mainly in the mechanical and scientific field. However, if one could have stepped into the mid-medieval uh, world with a gramophone or a radio set or a recording device, uh, a cell phone, he would have caused a greater wonder than these marvels causes us. Had he associated them with religion, they would have been classed as miracles. But had he not so associated them, he would have not found, been found guilty of the black arts and would have been put to death. In, the field, in this field, miracle has ceased to be miraculous with us. And though succeeding ages may see yet more wonderful achievements, they would excite little wonder in us. We have learned to see in such things the achievements of man open equally to all men and achieve through his understanding of the world around him.
in the world of personality, uh, we have not made corresponding strides. Yet in the world, even more startling discoveries uh, may await us, and things which would seem to us to be as marvelous as modern mechanical and scientific achievements would have seemed to the medieval mind uh, maybe really no more marvelous than such things seem to us. In the world of personality and spirit that that uh, the uniqueness of Jesus lay and his transcends trans transcendence uh, there may be a sufficient explanation of many of his uh, wonderful things recorded of him especially and this is true of his miracles of healing which compromised the great majority of the miracles ascribed to him these are examples of the power of personality over personality of the spirit over body and are not really incredible. They are beyond our power because we have not attained his heights of personality, but not necessarily beyond our potentiality. This is to preserve a place for Christ's miracles of healing by removing them from the category of miracle in the sense of the supernatural. It is not to remove them from the category of miracle within the terms of our def simple definitions, however. The greatest discoveries that await us in the world of personality are the discoveries of the possibility of a life that is linked with the power of God. The capacity of the personality that is enriched by the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God and the greatest achievements that are open to us are the achievements of God through us. The uniqueness of Jesus lay precisely there, in his oneness of spirit with God, and in his being the perfect vehicle of God's will. In his activity, God was active, initiating succor for the needy, suffers through the powers of personality and spirit, just as truly as he initiated succor for Israel by making the winds. His messengers, his messengers and the storms, the instrument of his will. There are, however, a few miracles ascribed to Jesus which provide a much greater difficulty than miracles of healing. There are the cases of restoration of the dead to life and the so-called nature miracles. It is possible that these are accretions, uh, accretions, uh, that represent the dramatic form of simple incidences, incidents or transformation of parables. In, in modern times, much ingenuity uh, has been devoted to explanations along these lines. It is equally possible that there are secrets of life and death and the elements around us, which are hidden from us, but which Jesus penetrated. If we believe that God can initiate events in the world which he has made, and if we believe that God was uniquely in Christ, we can scarcely deny the possibility that God is Christ, wrought that which is marvelous in our eyes. It is not necessary to dishonor God by supposing that there was really any suspension or reversal of the laws of nature, though there might seem to be. 
When a piece of steel leaps up to join a magnet, the law of gravity might seem to be suspended, but we are aware that is not really so, but that the attraction which we represent by the word of gravity is overcome by a greater attraction which equally belongs to the world of nature. It may be possible for God as well as for man to employ one natural power, whether in a physical or spiritual world, to overcome another. But to suppose that, in order to achieve his will, God has reduced to the necessity of breaking the rules from time to time uh, would be less honoring to his wisdom and power than to suppose that his works were the agents and not embarrassments of his purpose. I must, uh, we must now uh, return to the main theme and observe that when we have decided whether we will accept the account of this miracle as true or whether we will reject that as an untrustworthy, um, we have not touched the question of the religious use of the stories. There is nothing essentially religious in believing that Elijah made an axe head swim. On the other hand, there is nothing essentially religious to disbelieve in it. The ultimate use of the Bible for the purpose for which it was written, pre, written and preserved remains still to be attained. That, uh, that can only be attained when we penetrate the enduring principles, the stories enshrined, and find them in the Word of God unto our souls. Let me illustrate here by uh, some stories I have not yet mentioned. Take the story of Elijah being fed by the ravens or the story of the widow's curse. Are these exact accounts of fact or legendary exaggerations? Are these, uh, I have found that, uh, said that we are bound to be cautious of the marvelous in the Elijah stories where so much of the miraculous is mere magic and doubtful historical value. But merely to dismiss these stories as doubtful historical value is to miss their religious value. They enshrine an utterly true message. They say that he who lives for God may count on God, that she who forgets herself in ministering to God's servants is not forgotten of God. That is true. Whatever the worth of the form of the story, the message is reliable for it can be illustrated by countless stories that are indubitably true. Many years ago, there was this man in charge of a church. He pleaded on one occasion for moral liberal support for foreign missions. On the following Sunday, an elderly lady in their church she was well over the age of 80, slipped an envelope into the, to the hands of the pastor containing an extra gift of seven of uh, extra cash for missions. She lived in a almshouse, and uh, the pastor knew she could not have much to spare, and she already gave generously to missions. So he asked her to take it back, assuring her that God would be satisfied that it was in her heart to give it, as he was satisfied uh, that it was in Abraham's heart to sacrifice Isaac. 
with quite dignity, she reminded me, reminded the pastor, uh, that she was not offering the money to her, to him, that uh, my appeal had brought a call to her heart she could not resist, and that uh, that the pastor had no right to refuse her gift. A week or two later, the pastor received a check for uh, a lot more money from a lady for from a lady for whom uh, the pastor had done a service for, with the request that the pastor would use it for works as he pleased. He decided that the first first bit of the money should go to the almshouse friend. She was a woman of good family and very proud, and uh, the pastor had never before ventured to her office such uh, small sums from the church. Core fund uh, also were available, for the pastor knew she would be hurt, but he hoped that he could be more successful with the with uh, uh, the money that was he received. He went around to see her. And as he was leaving, he asked if uh, she would do me a service and allowing him, I should say the pastor, to leave with her a small gift and told her of its source. Immediately, the woman burst into tears and told the pastor that at that moment, when he knocked on her door, she was actually on her knees praying that God would somehow send her something to meet her needs. She had no food in her house, and for three days would receive no more food or no more money. But not a hint of this she breathed to the pastor during his visit. And now she found that while the prayer was on her lips, the answer was at the door. So the pastor left with a trembling heart, realizing that when he had responded to the impulse of his heart, he had been but the agent of God's ministry to his servant. He left, too, with a deeper sense of the truth of the message of these Elijah stories, that they who live for God, who in self-forgetting service yield their all to him, may count on it is uh, unnecessary to say anything about the use of the prophetic books of the Old Testament, for it has been sufficiently set above the beyond any historical understanding of the prophets in the light of their own time and conditions. There are timeless principles embodied in their message, and that we may apprehend those principles and translate them into terms of our day and our conditions. It has been said that their message is fundamentally a message of God and that they viewed every aspect of the life of their time in the light of their vision of God. In this, too, there is profound religious messages for us. To us has been given a larger vision of God than was given to any one of them. Since we have entered into the inheritance not alone of their understanding of God, but the fuller understanding expressed in the New Testament, and to us there is committed the task of seeking and making 
the life of our day, the embodiment of those principles which belong to God himself. He who sees the vision of God will ever find in that vision a call to which the only worthy response is, quote, here I am, send me, unquote. Moreover, the records of the Israelite prophets should continually remind us of how God enters the lives of the ordinary men who are ready to be the bearers of his message and how he speaks to them through their experience, turning their sorrow and sorrows and their plans into the channel of enrichment and illumination. And they should teach us to look on our experiences with open eyes that we may learn the things that God is ever seeking to say to us. Nor should the religious values of such books as Daniel be missed. There are many who give diligent study to this book on the mistaken assumptions that it is cryptogram of history and others who, in revolt against such an attitude, neglect it altogether. These two attitudes, an attitude neglect altogether, these two attitudes alike miss its deep religious value. For the author of the book of Daniel, while exercising his ministry through a medium quiet, quite different from that of the prophets, was no unworthy successor of theirs. The first part of his book consists of traditional tales and not accurate history. And the second part rests on the mistaken hope that in his own day, the divine intervention in history with the sweeping away of all the earthly empires and the establishments of the enduring empire of the saints of the Most High was about to take place. But we have sufficiently insisted that the Word of God can be found even amidst the mistakes and unfulfilled hopes, and it can be found in rich measure in this book. There is profound and enduring religious messages in the author's confidence that every power that rears itself against God shall be shattered. And through all that, he writes breaths the faith that the way of the wisdom for man lies in the other loyalty to God, though it bring him to the burning fiery furnace or the lion's den. As an example, we may take the uh, story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These can be studied critically for the indications that there is no contemporary account of things that happened in the days of of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. I can't, I can't pronounce this word. Um, and the curious absence of Daniel from this story may be explained by its completely independent origin while the indication that the story was written in the days of, of uh, Epiphanes and uh, Antichus, and that the image to which it really referred was set up in the temple by Antichus uh, may be noted. But there is nothing religious in this study. Its religious value begins to appear when remember when we remember that uh, it is a story of three men who could not be deflected from their loyalty to their God by any threats or cruel atrocities. When the king scornfully asked them to that asked them who is the God who could deliver them out of his hands and out of his burning fiery furnace with the supreme confidence, they replied, 
quote, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hands, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, unquote. That's in Daniel. Assured uh, that uh, God is able to deliver them, confident that he will. They rise they rise to yet another, uh, to a nobler height of uh, resolve to be faithful to him, though he should fail them and disappoint their trust. But if this is the only story and not history, if this is but a tale written down in, uh, in those days, it is not robbed of, of the value at all. Is it? Is this a parable of a good Samaritan robbed all value because it is a story? Have men asked, why should I be inspired by a mere tale to serve my neighbor in his distress? The fully historical service of Florence Nightingale was inspired by many. But has not the good Samaritan inspired vastly more deeds of unselfish services? It's not a story of often more than true history, is it? For while history may be the record of which things have happened once, a story may be the record of that which has happened often, which is in, is constantly the typical true. The story of these three men who had confidence that God could and would deliver them and who were delivered in those days when the story circulated, many uh, were displaying a light confidence and were not delivered. They were thrown into the fire, fierce flames of persecution and lost their lives. In effect, they too were saying, our God is able, and he will. But if not, they were displaying these magnificent spirit of loyalty to God, a loyalty that was content with nothing to in return from the hand of God. Save only the inner elations, elations that uh, loyalty itself brought. The recognition that the Bible is a religious book and is to be used as such comes when we read that story not as a dull bit of history or as a spirited story, but when we feel the inner kindling of the heart at that loyalty and are challenged by it to rise to a like spirit of loyalty turning aside from him to no idol, but giving him the undivided obedience of our hearts. When we return to the New Testament, we make equally study it with a great diligence and learning yet without religious profit. Or we may let all our study minister to our growth in the Spirit. We may give our exclusive attention to form criticism and minute analysis or to the historical and cultural background of the New Testament or to the theology of the Gospels or of Pauline epistles and be nothing bettered for all our study. On the other hand, all our study of these things may be born of our deep love for the New Testament and combined with our penetration of its spirit and message. We may, for instance, read the Gospel to see how Jesus was a real man amongst men we may try to recapture the atmosphere amidst which he lived. See the light in his eyes. He uttered some striking words, or the light that came to the eye 
of some burdened soul that he helped. If this is merely a detached exercise of historical imagination, it will be devoid of religious worth. On the other hand, we may rather see him not alone as one who lived as a man amongst men, but as one who lived as a man with God. God to him was supremely real, always one of his company, and always the dominant one. In any situation, he could breathe a word to him and hear his word in response. Every circumstance of life was charged with some message from the Father to him. Our reading of the Gospels may foster in us the attitude to God in life, the sense the sense that he is with us, speaking to us in all warp and woof and experience, sharing our experience and equipping us for it. We may let our study be accompanied with meditation, meditation on the truth that he taught, that may possess our heart and not our mind alone. Meditation on his life and the spirit that is a charm may steal into our life and his spirit appear in us. Meditation on his death and that its power may take hold of us and recreate us. Meditation on his purposes that they may become the purpose that inspire our lives, transmuting all our trivial ambitions by linking them to his glorious purpose for the world. There is much that... uh, we don't know and we haven't said, but have said enough to make it clear that we should value the fullest and frankest study of the Bible and find it in such a study no menace to the Spirit and, and trust. We have made it clear that merely intellectual understanding and inadequate is inadequate. To know all the Bible and yet to miss its soul is as sorry a performance as to study music yet without real appreciation of its beauty. The Bible is the vehicle of truth and teaching, of summons and challenge, and unless we not only understand these things in the light of the conditions of which they sprang, but also in the light of our own day and our own life and in circumstances, reinterpreting in terms of our own experiences and abiding principles which the Bible sets forth. It were better that we did not handle it. A merely negative biblical criticism that is only a polemic against the possessions of yesterday is insufficient and barren. We should rather aim to be constructive both intellectually and spiritually, bringing to the Bible minds that are keen and active, spirits that are humble and teachable, and souls that are alive to the grace and glory of God. Well, that ends our part four of our study of the relevance of the Bible for this evening. I'll be back on again uh, tomorrow evening at 8 p.m. Central Time, USA. And we'll do part five of seven. Uh, If you're curious, uh, I'm a Knight Templar, and our order 
If you're curious about our order of night tempers or perhaps you'd like to join us, you can go to www.americannightstemplers.com. Again, that's www.americannightstemplers.com. Also, if you have any prayer requests, uh, you can go there and uh, get hold of us there or leave a request for prayers, and we'll be more than happy. We will pray for you or your situations. But right now, let's talk about, let's have a prayer about spiritual warfare. Go in this with a spiritual warfare. Almighty God, we thank you for the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, one on the cross over Satan. We want to live in the power of that victory even today. Advance the cause of good. Restrain the forces that oppose your purposes. May we constantly remember that the victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil has already been won. May you yourself continually be our vision that we may trust in you fully to see us through not depending on our own strength. May we stand firm in all our spiritual resources. May our minds be set on you and your grace. May our righteousness be fully assured in Christ and may we be ready to serve you as we live and speak for you, constantly taking in your word and praying to you. We do not want to lead lives that are constantly defeated. Your word declares that we are more than conquerors through Christ, and we pray for that to become true in our own lives even now. We pray, too, for our wider communities and nations that you will release the unlimited power of Christ over spiritual forces that are present at present bind people, that you will right now turn around situations we currently consider hopeless. Demonstrate that you are the Lord of the world. Drive back areas of darkness. Bring healing where there is sickness and disease. May we all become strong and remain strong in you and your power. We pray all these things on the basis of the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Like I said, I'll be back here uh, tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Central Time, USA, for part five of seven on the uh, relevance of the Bible. I hope you enjoy these little talks and uh, what we have to say. And that's uh, most of this comes from the relevance of the Bible by H.H. H. Rowley. If you ever want to look that up, it's a great book. It's a little bit on the old side, but it still works for today. Kind of like the Bible does that for us, too. I want to say uh, God bless you, and may God continually hold you in his hands and his arms. Have a good night.